everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and welcome to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I decided to spiff up the professionalism of the podcast and do what seems to be popular, which was to add music. I hope you like the introductory music. I do. It reminds me of the music from this movie, 59 Middle Lane. I'm not sure if you saw it or not. It's more of a documentary than a movie. I actually wanted to get the music from that movie, and I'm still trying, but you can't buy it online, so it's a little bit trickier than normal. If you do have a chance, go to SoundCloud and listen to the soundtrack of 59 Middle Lane. It's really great. The movie is good too, but the composer of the soundtrack, Mario Grigorov, really hit it out of the park. Anyway, on to science. With the many, many challenges that people with autism face, motor is just one of them. Many people ask why motor issues are so closely followed early on in people with autism. First of all, motor symptoms are the first ones to emerge in babies who are later diagnosed with autism. But as it turns out, it's much more important than just motor on its face. A new collaborative study combining databases from two different countries found this week that fine motor skills at age three predicted expressive language outcome at age 19 in two different cohorts. They looked at a bunch of different things, including age at first walking, in addition to fine motor skills at age three, but fine motor skills was what really came out as the most influential in language ability at age 19. One thing to note of this study is that these were autistic adults who had delayed language at age three, and they followed them up to age 19. It wasn't subtle differences that made the influence. It was really children with extreme delayed fine motor scores at age three, who were most likely to remain minimally verbal at age 19. The authors point out that it's deficits in fine motor skills, not just delays that are associated with severe language impairments. And language was measured in different ways at age 19, so it wasn't just the artifact of one way of testing language over another. The effect was pretty robust, meaning that it certainly was not due to chance. So why should anyone care about this? Deficits, not delays, and fine motor skills may help predicting toddlers who have language impairments at age three who go on to have language impairments in adulthood. This, of course, reinforces the known link between early motor and language and later social behaviors in autism. Also, nonverbal IQ had much less of an impact, so it's more fine-grained than developmental skills. It's specific skills that can provide important cues to understanding longer-term language outcomes, and these early skills can be targeted in early intervention. It's been hard in the past to make these strong links because of the variability in language abilities across the lifespan. But by narrowing it down by language ability or disability in this case, more precise predictions can be made. On another note, verbal ability may be a way to help stratify different people on the spectrum to make more accurate predictions. If in fact fine motor skills does in fact predict language outcome in those with language delay at age three, then it's absolutely imperative that we be able to stratify different subgroups. Scientists do not yet know if motor interventions improve language ability at age 19, but I don't think it can hurt, honestly. This is a time when I feel like intensity of diversity of interventions is beneficial. There was also a great study that came out on Friday that ASF shared on social media, 
but in case you didn't have the time or interest to read the whole thing, I'll summarize it here as best I can, hopefully to spark your interest in it. Besides early motor function, a topic that gets dissed in autism is genetics and the use of model systems to study genetics in autism. These include things like worms, rats, mice, or even cells. An argument can be made that rats, mice, and worms don't have autism. It's uniquely human. So why bother even studying these other systems? And I get it. I actually see their point. But in a recent review in the journal Cell, three researchers from UCSD explain why it's important to understand the genetics of autism and why we need different ways to study it. Because those tiny interactions between autism genes and different molecules can be critically important for understanding everyone across the spectrum. These three researchers are Lilia Ayachikova, Alison Murotri, and Jonathan Sabat, again, all from UCSD. They didn't generate any new data in this paper. However, they do explain existing data findings in a way that clarifies why scientists are so interested in these tiny genetic findings that most people, and I will count myself among them at times, think may not be just the trees in the forest, but the weeds in the forest, if that makes any sense. Genes and gene-environment interactions and where they come from and how they work certainly might explain why people with autism have high levels of comorbid health issues. A recent review by Meng Chuan Lai and colleagues in Canada revealed that in a summary of summaries across ages, across hundreds of autism studies, that the rate of ADHD in people was about 28%, anxiety is 13%, and I know that seems low, but remember these are documented disorders, not just the present of anxiety per se, 12% for sleeping disorders, 9% for depression, 5% for bipolar depression, and 4% for schizophrenia. Autism is a spectrum of a spectrum, and better cross-studies of genetics of these disorders with and without autism will help provide a better understanding of these mental health issues and answers about what people can do about them. Now, I've already explained the difference between common polygenic risk and rare inherited mutations as well as de novo mutations. They're all incredibly important in autism spectrum disorders. If nothing else, the de novo mutations help parents realize that their child's autism is nothing that they should feel guilty about. A mutation did not come from one parent or another. I know a lot of times this idea of parental guilt seems outdated, but it's really very present in families. Even a rare inherited mutation, of course, is not the fault of the parent. But in those cases, parents have an explanation. And guess what? So does the person affected. Despite how you feel about genetics, understanding your genetic makeup can be very helpful for families and autistic adults. It's obviously your choice if you want a genetic test or what you want to do with those results, but it can be very beneficial. But without understanding what those genes do and how they affect different symptoms, a genetic test is probably meaningless. In addition to the mutations themselves, the way genes interact with each other is considered to be more and more important. Take, for example, oligogenic effects. A large genetic mutation, like at chromosome 1 or 16, carries a greater risk of severe symptoms if other genetic mutations are present. So even within a particular known genetic mutation, which you think might present with a very distinct behavioral profile, it really sometimes doesn't. It's the other genetic mutations that impact the outcome. Same with background genetics. 
people with different sets of common variants, which lots of people have, may have different profiles based on the presence or absence of a known rare mutation. This all makes interpreting genetic results trickier, but also with the granularity of new genetic analyses can give more information to a genetic counselor to interpret those results and perhaps make more specific recommendations for services and intervention. Here's another thing that this review explains. One genetic mutation may have multiple effects. It's the way genes impact networks of other genes and chemicals that influence the way these other genes work. And this has a profound influence on what that gene is doing. This may seem like an insolvable problem. One gene, thousands of networks, millions of spokes on that network. How on earth can anyone ever take that and do anything with it that might predict outcome, explain symptoms, or provide a better understanding of autism? I'd love to be able to say the larger the gene mutation, the bigger the effect it has, but that's unfortunately not the way it works. This does seem like a Herculean task. This is why, and for those of you listening, this is why is in all caps, scientists use model systems. Through the use of these model systems, scientists know that some ASD risk genes actually act by encoding proteins that directly then regulate gene expression. These genes are having more and more of a known impact. And in interest to families, these genes were not even known about five years ago. So a mutation of a gene may or may not have meant anything to clinicians or researchers when genetic results was given back five years ago. Also, one gene mutation may disrupt an entire cascade of biological functions that affect gene expression and the function of other genes down the line. It's a game of chess almost, but in the simplest way. I don't play chess, so I'm literally thinking of the simplest way of playing chess. One move early on in the game can affect how every play is made and the ultimate outcome. Scientists are really at the tip of the iceberg in understanding genetics and certainly gene-environment interactions. Many of you may be thinking, okay, well, this is all fascinating, but how does it affect me? Well, for one, many of these molecular signals that are part of this downstream cascade are the targets of intervention. One example is what is known as the mTOR pathway, which is disrupted in autism, including autism associated with different neurological disorders like tubular sclerosis. Disruption of this pathway is actually one of the main features of tubular sclerosis, and people with this disorder have a high prevalence of autism spectrum disorders. Now, Novartis has a drug that reverses the changes in mTOR signaling. And while the first pass of a clinical trial was not that encouraging in people with tubular sclerosis and autism, The more we know about genes and pathways, the more specific these drugs can get and the more possibility of different pharmaceutical agents we have. What all this says is this. When scientists study autism, they can't think of autism as a unitary construct. They have to consider subtypes and subtypes possibly of genetics to understand the specific needs of people across the spectrum. Genetics and gene-environment interactions is important. It informs people about what they can expect, what families need to do, and what therapies help with what feature or symptom. Next week, I'll be talking to Pam Feliciano, director of SPARC, who just published a new study on the genetic architecture of autism. Many of you are involved in SPARC, or I hope you are. So I hope you listen into the podcast so you can hear about what's going on with this project. 
Also, as an upsetting end to the podcast, I want to tell you on a non-scientific note that this week I've been almost overwhelmed with stories about people who live near or around someone else who does not understand autism. And as a consequence, they are being anything from ignorant to downright nasty. There was a story posted on Facebook about an interaction between a someone who couldn't sleep because an autistic girl in the apartment next door was up all night. Someone else I read about suggested that a parent keep their autistic son at home because his behaviors were distressing to others at a baseball game. All this comes from misunderstanding. I have to believe that most people are good people. I know when things like this happen, the impulse is to maybe egg their car or slash their tires or shame them publicly. Let me tell you, I totally get that. But that's really not going to solve the problem. If this happens to you and someone in your community tries to insult you or degrade you, if your child has autism or yourself have autism, take the high road and try to explain it to them. I bet they really have no clue. Thanks for listening this week and talk to you next week with our special guest, Pam Feliciano.